Acts chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 17 through Acts 20, verse 1, as Pastor Chris continues in our series on sowing gospel seeds. We're going to sow with gospel perseverance today, and the text that's used for today's sermon is Acts chapter 19, verse 17 through the first verse of Acts chapter 20. You can find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 641. So listen as I read. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit that he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the, the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down to Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you, if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, and being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you... Uh, that uh, we can just have been just inundated with uh, Scripture and, and talking about sowing gospel seeds over the last month and our missionaries and our missions conference and faith promise giving and commitments. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in our lives and open our hearts and minds to sowing gospel seeds wherever we are and to learn lessons that we can apply to our lives directly and daily. And we just pray that you would be with Pastor Chris as he brings your, your message this morning. What you have laid on his heart from this passage in Acts Help us to have open hearts and minds and to learn from them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I hope you have your Bibles and uh, if you'll keep them open there to Acts chapter 19. And then also if you take out your notes, you can help you to not only pay attention while the sermon is being preached, but also retain for later study. There's many of our people will even take these notes and use them for their devotions and pray over them during the week. Well, where are we 
in this series? Well, we've had a great world outreach celebration, but prior to that, and you can see it on these posters, we've been challenged from God's Word to sow with gospel abandon, to be seed sowers who sow with abandon rather than soil inspectors that are paralyzed by analysis. We've been challenged to sow with gospel accuracy, to maintain a teachable spirit while we are sowing so that we are learning and we're not waiting to sow until we know it all, but we are learning and maintaining a teachable spirit. We've talked about sowing with gospel power. Don't be an almost Christian, but be an actual Christian who has the spirit dwelling within you to enable you and empower you to sow the gospel. And before the world outreach, to sow with gospel boldness. Don't be a powerless poser, but be a powerful sower who has the word of God, as we saw in what Zach read. It is able to grow mightily and prevail over all. But where are we in Paul's mission in Ephesus? I want you to look at verse 21 to just kind of position us. Where are we? It says in verse 21, Now after these things were finished or accomplished or fulfilled, what does that mean? What, what, what things have been accomplished and what does it mean for Paul? Apparently it means Paul is ready to leave. It says he purposed by the Spirit or in the Spirit to leave Ephesus. So what was accomplished? Well, it's the mission of God that was accomplished. This word fulfilled or finished or accomplished is used throughout Acts when the mission of God has been fulfilled. So how do we know when God's mission is being fulfilled and what God wants is being done? Well, it's what precedes this. It's really Acts 19, 8 through 19. It's the fact that spiritual conversion is taking place. The church of Ephesus has been planted through evangelism. Radical transformation has taken place. The church was established as the word of God grows mightily. And the church has experienced geographical expansion as other churches were multiplied through missions. And that's what's taking place. And Paul knows when that's taking place, the mission is being accomplished and I can move on to Macedonia, Jerusalem, and ultimately to Rome. And it's summed up so well by verses 17 and 19. As the mission is being accomplished, the name of the Lord is magnified and the word of the Lord grows mightily. So where are we as a church? in regards to God's mission. That's something we as leaders and members need to constantly be asking ourselves. And we still have work to do as LifeBridge in all three of these areas. We need to do a better job at evangelism. We need to do a better job at discipleship. One of the themes from our global partners this last week And if you listened, it was repeated by each one, the importance of discipling for fulfilling God's mission. We need to do a better job at missions. I think we do a great job in in celebrating that and engaging and mobilizing, but we can do better. And here's the thing. God willing, this past week, God has worked in your hearts to where you've made some commitments. I need to grow in my missions giving. I need to grow in my sowing of the gospel. I need to grow in praying for our missionaries. I hope that you have made commitments. And if you have, what should we expect? What should we expect now that we had this great celebration and we've made these commitments? Well, we should expect the same thing that Paul and the church of Ephesus encountered in this chapter, and that is opposition, opposition and cultural confusion. Notice how this plays out. In verses 17 through 20 that Zach read, there is gospel transformation taking place. 
in verses 21 through 22, because God's mission was being fulfilled, the Spirit was leading Paul on to Macedonia, Jerusalem, and ultimately Rome. He is so confident of what God is doing, he even sends ahead two of his best team members to pave the way. And then notice... In chapter 20, verse 1, the last verse that Zach read, he goes to Macedonia. He goes there. But there's 20-some verses in between there. What happens in between? And what happens is opposition and persecution to God's mission advancing. So here's what I want you to see. What happens after we sow gospel seeds? Gospel transformation always results in opposition and persecution. You can mark it down. Every time God makes an advance with the gospel, Satan seeks to counterfeit it and counterattack with it. And that's what's happening here. As a church, we can expect... And you as individuals, as a married couple, as a family unit, you can expect after this world outreach celebration, after your emotions have been moved, after your intellect has gained greater understanding, after your will has made a decision to move forward, you can expect opposition. And God wants us to be ready for it. Amen? And it's no accident that this passage is here right after our world outreach celebration. And so this morning, I want to give you four truths about sowing with gospel perseverance, because that's what it takes. It takes persevering in spite of opposition and persecution. And, and Paul did persevere, because in spite of all that happens that we're going to see today, he's in chapter 20, verse 1, He still goes to Macedonia. So let me give you four truths for sowing with gospel perseverance. And here's the first one. Gospel transformation is the result of gospel proclamation. Gospel transformation is the result of gospel proclamation and not political action. I don't think it's any any accident and it's in God's providence that not only is this passage coming after the world outreach celebration but before Tuesday's election. Now notice after these things finish verse 21. As I just said, the proclamation of the gospel with abandon, accuracy, power, and boldness, has resulted in gospel transformation through evangelism, discipleship, missions, spiritual conversion, radical transformation of life. Remember, when we sow with gospel boldness, God doesn't just make decisions, He makes disciples. And there's been geographical expansion. There's a reason why there's a letter to Colossae. It's because the church of Ephesus expanded out into other cities and other regions. There's a reason why Paul wants to go to Jerusalem and on to Rome, because Rome represents the uttermost parts of the world. There is expansion taking place, and it's always a result of gospel proclamation, not political action, not protest marches, not citywide protests, not hateful tweets on social media, not any political party, R or D, not the Congress, not the Supreme Court, not the presidency. It is gospel proclamation. Amen? Let's do that better. It's gospel proclamation. Yeah, listen. I want you to go vote. God wants you to go vote. Go vote and vote your conscience. And more importantly, let the gospel influence how you vote. But understand this, voting is one day and then the results are there. But gospel proclamation needs to be taking place every day. Every day. And there's no one that can stop us or hinder us from doing that. We can't control what goes on in Washington. Even by voting, we can't control it. And we can't. And listen, these believers didn't have 
the blessing of being in a republic that operated as a democracy. They were in a dictator, an empire, and they don't have... So listen, God's means don't just work in a democracy. See, not everybody gets to vote. So go vote. Don't miss that. But understand this, that God's means work in every culture under every time, and it's gospel proclamation. And you know what's interesting about this passage? Even the unsaved troublemaker in this passage understood what brought the transformation. Demetrius the silversmith understand understood better than some Christians today of what what happens to bring transformation. Look at verses 23 through 26. Look at verses 23. Now we're going to hear the report of gospel transformation through the eyes and the ears of an unsaved troublemaker, Demetrius. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says this, or let me let me go back. Let me read. Let's read 23 through 26 to get the get the context. Look at verse 23 in in Acts 19. It says this about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis to the Greeks, Diana to the Romans, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. And here's what he said. Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that God, God's made with hands are no gods at all. The first thing I want you to see is Demetrius is testifying. He's witnessing. He's saying, look, we've all seen it and we've all heard it. We are eyewitnesses of what we know is gospel transformation. But what he says, this Paul. This Paul, and he said it with contempt, he said it with anger, and he said it with sarcasm. This Paul is the troublemaker. In reality, who was the troublemaker? Demetrius was the troublemaker. And in reality, who was causing the gospel transformation? Not Paul the messenger, but Jesus, who is Lord. But he's he's testifying to the power of the gospel. And he says, this Paul, missing that it's the mighty God and the risen king he proclaims. And then he says, this Paul has persuaded. That's the very same word that Luke has already used in verse 8 to describe gospel conversion. He's saying, he's basically saying, look, people are getting persuaded. People are getting converted. Evangelism is taking place. And then he says, not only are decisions being made, but he says disciples are being made because not only are they persuaded, but they're being turned away. And that word turned away is very, very important because it means to be moved from one position to another. It means to have one way of thinking to a new way of thinking from one way of life to a new way of life, to one viewpoint on your sin to a new viewpoint on your sin. Basically, Demetrius doesn't know it, but he just described repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And he says, not only is this happening, but it's happening to a considerable number of people to the degree that business in the idol making is going down. And not only that, but he sees the gospel expansion. He goes on and he says, you see and hear this not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. That is practically the same description that Luke makes in verse 10. Here's my point. Even this unsaved man who's causing trouble for the way of God understands that gospel proclamation results in gospel transformation. So please persevere in proclaiming the gospel. Now, here's the second truth 
I want you to see. Because even though lost people may recognize this, it doesn't mean they believe it, much less like it. So here's the second truth for persevering. Number two, gospel transformation leads to opposition. Gospel transformation leads to opposition from the world and the ruler of this world. That's why we have to persevere in doing it. That not only is God bringing about transformation, we get excited about that, but as he's doing that, the devil brings opposition and the world system brings opposition. So we should expect it and persevere. Now, in this passage, the opposition that we're going to face is described, there's three kinds of opposition that we're going to face. You're going to face it. I face it. We all are going to face it. Two of the kinds of opposition are seen in the passage. One kind of opposition is unseen because it's always unseen. And so let's take a look at the opposition that we can expect. Number one, personal opposition. You should expect when God's doing a work in your life, you should expect and commit to persevering through personal opposition. Now, we see the personal opposition in a man by the name of Demetrius. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. For a man, an individual named Demetrius, a silversmith who made little shrines of Artemis. I almost brought some of my royals bobbleheads. I've got a little miniature shrine to Kauffman Stadium that I could have brought. These are the things they're making. They're making these little shrines to this great temple and the great goddess of Artemis. And this guy makes a lot of money from it, bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered with the craftsmen of similar trades. And here's what he said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. We're living the good life, and the good life comes from selling these trinkets of false worship to a false goddess. And this gospel proclamation and transformation is bad for business. That's what he's saying. Now, you've got to understand When individual people understand that the gospel is beginning to transform your life, they're going to push back. And it's going to come from those who know you best. It's going to come from those you work with. It's going to come from family members, extended family members at Thanksgiving gatherings, at Christmas gatherings. It's going to come in the workplace. It's going to come. Because when the gospel begins to reorder your spending, people don't, family doesn't like that. Some of you have experienced, why are you giving so much to that church? Well, you don't understand, I'm not giving it to the church. I'm giving it to the Lord who gave me his all. Well, what are you worried about that? Aren't there problems over here? Why are you investing so much time with ministry? Because Jesus gave everything for me. They don't understand the reordering of your spending. They don't understand the reordering of your time. Coworkers won't understand the reordering of your speech and your entertainment. Hey, Joe, you don't laugh at the things you used to laugh at. Hey, you're not looking at the dirty pictures like we used to look at together. Hey, your whole appetite, your whole way of thinking has changed. And there will be opposition. And listen, beloved, if there's not, we need to ask, have I experienced gospel transformation? Because there is such a blurring and blending of the world and God's people that we really, once you get outside of the building, it's hard to tell a Christian from a non-Christian. And I'm not talking about legalism and rules and hair length and hair flips like I just saw. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about those external things. I'm talking about a change of the heart that begins to reorder what entertains me, what attracts me. It changes my hunger and my desire. I'm around the world because I need to be a witness, but I long to be around God's people. I want Christian friends as well as unsafe friends. So there's personal. But here's what I want you to really see. Not only personal opposition, I want you to see cultural 
opposition, cultural opposition, because this individual takes it to a corporate mob level in verses 26 through 29. So in 26, he gathers his people around and he tells them what they're all seeing. And then he says this in verse 27. Not only this, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, a personal issue, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship even be dethroned from her magnificence. You see, the opposition grows from a personal level to a enraged group of businessmen into a mob action that fills the street, and they march down the street of Ephesus to the amphitheater that was at the end of the street, that has been excavated by archaeologists and they know holds at least 25,000 people. Now, we don't know how many people followed this mob, but it was in the midst of a festival uh, celebrating this goddess. And so, very likely, this theater is filled with 25,000 people. You say, how many is that? Well, it's more than the Sprint Center, but less than the K. It's a lot of people. But what I want you to see is, why are they so enraged? They're enraged because the gospel has influenced so many individuals. And all it takes is a, it doesn't take everyone. It just takes a little leaven to influence a group. It has influenced so many people that are not just decisions for Christ, but disciples for Christ, that the culture of the city is threatened to be changed and transformed by the gospel. Is that not glorious? And so what I want you to see is that the city of Ephesus was the epicenter of the false cult of the goddess of Artemis. She was called Artemis the Great, the Magnificent of the Ephesians. The citizens of Ephesians in this passage are called the guardians, not of the galaxy, guardians of the temple of Artemis and the statue of Artemis. And the thing that stood out about this statue is a meteor had fallen from the sky and some craftsman had taken the meteor and molded it into an image of Artemis or Diana, who uh, was a statue of fertility with uh, multiple breasts upon her as a woman and just immoral and debauchery. And yet this meteor was was worked into the statue in such a way that the myth and the superstition was that Diana herself had fallen out of the sky. This statue had fallen out of the sky. Now, how important was this false goddess, this statue, this temple to the city? Well, Ephesus was the capital of Asia, and it influenced all of Asia, and it even influenced the entire world because this temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. The worship of Artemis was the economic engine of Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was the banking center of the city. The statue of Artemis was the basis of their civic pride. The cult of Artemis was filled with immorality, paganism, demonism, and every sort of depravity that bound the culture and the citizens of this city in their sin and in their unbelief. This is Ephesus. So if the goddess, so if the goddess of Artemis was so great and, and made the city so powerful, why was 27, 25,000 people, why were they so Scared. Well, here's why. Look at verse 27. Look in your Bible and see in verse 27, the false worship was being discredited, which was bad for the craftsmen. The, the actual trade of theirs. I mean, if God is the living God and Jesus has risen from the dead and he's alive, why do I need to buy your trinkets anymore? Don't need them. Don't need them. And so the business was being discredited. The false temple was being debunked, which was bad for the city. 
but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. The idea was, again, if my God is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father, I don't need to go to your temple, and I don't need to see your meteor statue thing, okay? And then the false goddess was being dethroned. I love that translation, dethroned. There is one throne over the universe. It is one seat. And on that seats the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is there and he is Lord in this passage. The whole world indeed worshiped. But the God who is over this world, Jesus Christ, was transforming lives through gospel proclamation. And so, man, what you have in verse 27, don't let, you know, it's sitting on a page, but you got to get into the context of Ephesus and understand there is a power struggle in this passage. Who's the greatest? Who's the most powerful? Whose name will be magnified in Ephesus and Asia and the whole world? Who will sit on the throne of people's hearts? Who will sit on the throne of people's pocketbooks? Who will sit on the throne of their schedules? Who will sit on the throne of their phones? That's what was going on. That's what was taking place. But there's a third kind of opposition And it is unseen. It is not mentioned in this passage. It's supernatural opposition. It's not seen in this passage because it's not seen in this world. But we know it's there in Ephesus because in our previous message, there was that demon spirit that was at work among the people. And we know that Ephesus was filled with demonic activity. And beloved, don't be deceived. So is Kansas City. So is the suburbs. So is the urban. The, the, the demonic activity is not something that superstitious, backward cultures create. It's a reality. And that's what's taking place here. Who was the one that was ultimately behind all this? Was it George Soros on the left? Was it the KKK on the right? Was it just Demetrius? No, it's the devil, folks. It's the devil a real and powerful ruler over this world. Satan is never mentioned, but we know that his demons were there. And listen, you know know how we know this? We know it from the Bible, but you know what's cool about this? We know it from a letter Paul wrote to the Ephesians. So later, Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, I want you to understand who the real enemy is. And so here's what he says in Ephesians 6. You can turn there in your Bibles if you like. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and not only that church, but the churches in Asia Minor, because more than likely the letter to the the Ephesians was a, a, a letter circulated to all these churches that they influence. And so here's what Paul says, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, the enemy in Ephesus is the same enemy in Kansas City, and it's the devil. And what was his goal through Demetrius? What was his goal through this mob action? He wanted to silence the messengers, because the devil knows that transformation comes through proclamation. And the best way the devil, he, he says, let's silence those guys, and death is best. He wants to destroy the church that has just been planted, established, and is multiplied. He wants to stop the mission. He doesn't want Paul to make it to Macedonia, and he certainly doesn't want Paul to make it to Rome. He wants to keep the lost enslaved in their blindness. Because you see, Satan blinds the lost to the glory of Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.3. If our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, 
in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not Diana, not Artemis, not a image made with hands, but the living Son of God, who is the image of God. You see, Satan's goal is to keep us off our game and to major on the minor. See, he wants us to get all wrapped up in this political nonsense that's going on. And it's important. I shouldn't call it nonsense. It's nonsense in terms of its worldly issues and worldly confusion. It is this mob who doesn't even know what they're doing or why they're doing it. And we have clarity as God's people. And we need to stay on our game and realize that our, the, our warfare is spiritual, not political. It is spiritual. And only the church of Jesus Christ is equipped to bring this good news to the world. And so if we descend into making this a political and an economic and, and a social issue, as important as some of those issues are, they're important. It's the gospel that brings clarity to it. And our weapons are spiritual and they're more powerful than even voting. Did I say make sure you vote Tuesday? But you know what's more powerful than a vote? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How, Paul? Through the gospel. And you know what's fascinating about what I just read to you? Destroying speculations is the same word, the same word that Luke uses for dethroning the magnificence of the goddess Artemis. In other words, we don't dethrone the goddess Artemis by marching around the temple with protest signs and running into the temple and tearing it down with a rope. We bring down the the image of Artemis by preaching the gospel, by preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. And when the word of the gospel penetrates hearts, then people say, that's like an ugly statue that means nothing. And it transforms the way we live. So here's the good news for seed sowers and all peoples. Here's the good news. Nothing can stop God from calling out his people by the power of the gospel. Nothing, no one can stop God. Isn't that good news? And that's good news for us who are sowing, and it's good news for those who are hearing, who are entrenched in unbelief, who are entrenched by the devil and blinded because the light of the gospel can penetrate darkness. But you and I have to be the seed sowers. We have got to turn the light on. And we can't be scared into silence. We cannot. We must not. So keep on sowing. Now, here's the third thing I want you to see. Here's the third truth to persevere with gospel perseverance, and it's this. Gospel transformation sets the church apart in cultural confusion. Gospel transformation sets the church apart in cultural confusion. We're going to move now in verses, in, 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 in these verses, we're going to move into the riot. So look at verses 29 through the end of the passage, or at least 29 and 33. Let's look at that, because this just jumped out at me. What Luke emphasizes is cultural chaos. And I'm like, man, has he been watching news, you know? Uh, the, in verse 28, the craftsmen are filled with rage and they begin to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And in verse 29, the city is filled with confusion as they rush to the amphitheater, flooding into this 
uh, cultural center of the city. And then in verse 32, once the mob gets inside the stadium-like theater, some are shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority didn't even know why they were there. I'm telling you, watch the news. Half these people... Whether they're the talking heads or whether they're in the protests or what, half of them don't even know why they're there. And we know that because sometimes reporters go and ask, why are you here? It's just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying there is cultural chaos right now. There is cultural chaos. But do you know what's interesting about this passage? (laughs) Not one Christian speaks. To that chaos. Not one Christian. Not one. Paul doesn't speak in this passage. Gaius and Aristarchus who are drugged, dragged, not drugged, dragged, dragged into that temple and who are about to be torn from limb by limb. They don't speak. They don't speak. Because what's speaking is the radical transformation of their lives. Let me show you three things here. Number one, Christians must be set apart from the cultural confusion by our radical obedience to the mission. By our radical obedience to the mission. And I want you to look at Gaius and Aristarchus. These guys were after Paul. And I don't know where Paul was. He wasn't hiding. We're going to see that in a moment. Maybe he was working on the tents and these guys were out in the market. Or maybe these guys were making tents while Paul was out doing other ministry. But they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus. And all we're told about them in verse 29 is this. They are Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Now, what are these two guys from Macedonia doing in Ephesus? And because they're in Ephesus, they're in the midst of a riot, and they're about to be torn apart by wild animals, right? People acting like animals. You know why they were there? Radical obedience to the mission. You see, God had moved on their heart in Macedonia to be a part of the mission with the Apostle Paul. There is no reason why those two guys would ever have been in Ephesus at that time and been dragged by that mob action if they didn't have a radical obedience to the mission. Just this week, Charles Wesco, if you've heard the story, a missionary, a father of eight who went to Cameroon, Africa, just got on the, on, on the mission field in Cameroon this week, and rebel forces there took him out. Father of eight. What was Charles Wesco, father of eight, doing in Cameroon? Was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? No. He was in the right place at the right time due to a radical obedience to the mission. And there will be opposition. And he felt that. So please understand that. Secondly, we should be set apart by our sacrifice. Well, let me just say this. In other words, if somebody's, if a mob is going to take us and tear us apart, let them tear us apart for our radical obedience to the mission, not for being dummies and jerks and hateful people. Are you with me? There is something worthy to die for. It's a radical obedience to the mission, okay? Now, secondly, is by our sacrificial love for people. Look at verses 30, 31. Crazy Paul wants, you know, you know Paul should be saying, well, we'll let the team take one, you know, take one for me. I'll just stay out here and I'll pray for him. No, Paul wants to go in. Why does Paul want to go in? Because he loves the people of God. Because he loves Gaius and Aristarchus. Because they are team members, brothers in Christ, co-laborers in the gospel. And I want to be with them. And out of love, the disciples say, no, you can't go in there. God has a purpose for you in Macedonia and beyond. And so there's this love for God's people, a sacrificial love. But Paul, I believe, not only wanted to go into that stadium to identify with his brothers in Christ. You know why else I think he wanted to go in there? He wanted to do what Paul always liked to do with unsaved people. Paul saw a crowd of 25,000 people and said, I've got to preach to them. Yeah, but Paul, they want to kill you. 
Yeah, but they're in bondage to the devil. And my enemy is not Demetrius. It's not this crowd. My enemy is the devil. And my Lord's greater than him. And so I have a love for lost people. In fact, his love was so amazing for the lost. Not only was he willing to go in there and preach the gospel and sacrifice himself for the gospel, but we see that also in verse 31, there were these Asiarchs. You go, what's an Asiarch? It's a ruler of Asia who has been put in power by the Roman Empire. There were secular rulers who had become Paul's friend. Do you think they shared political beliefs? No. Do you think they had the same worldview? No. Do you think these unsaved rulers did evil and wicked things at times? Maybe a lot? Yeah. But Paul had friendship. Paul had friendship with lost people because of a sacrificial love for the lost. And consequently, these friends of his they wanted to save him. And they said, Paul, don't go in there. You're a crazy man. You're, you don't go in there. Let me give you my third, third point here is this. We should be set apart by our personal suffering for the name of his fame. We should be set aside by our personal suffering for the name of Jesus, our king. You see, here's the point. Paul says this in chapter 21. Uh, because when the Spirit told him you're going to go to Macedonia and Jerusalem, the Spirit also said, oh, by the way, you're going to get bound and arrested in Jerusalem. And so the believers would say, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem For the name of the Lord. So let me give you the last truth. Let me give you the last truth, number four. Gospel transformation enables us to persevere because of God's sovereign protection. Because of God's sovereign protection. You know... You know what's interesting about this passage is not only do Christians never speak, not only does not only is Satan never seen, but you know who else is never seen in this passage? God. God's not found in this passage. What is he telling us? And yet God's sovereign fingerprints and providential protection are all over this passage. Who does speak up on behalf of the... This is what's amazing. It's not the Christians. And God's not seen. Who speaks up? Who does God use to calm the confusion and dismiss the mob? He uses an unsaved, nameless town clerk. Let's hear it for the Dilberts in life, right? I mean, this functionary, this town clerk... This nameless individual, and I think he's nameless because I don't think he ever got saved. God used an unknown, unnamed, unsaved man to calm this mob in verses 33 through 41 and to save the life of Gaius and Aristarchus and to restore order to the city. I think I have this verse there in your notes. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Listen, the reason Gaius and Aristarchus could persevere until the mob was calmed in God's sovereign timing was their lives had been transformed. The reason Paul wanted to rush into danger was because his life had been transformed. The reason Paul knew, okay, I want to go, but I'm not going to go. I have a sovereign God who has a mission for me beyond Ephesus. So let me say this to you. Whose name is greater in Ephesus? Whose name is greater in Kansas City? Whose name is greater in your life this morning 
It should be Jesus Christ because he is Lord. He came down not as a lifeless piece of meteorite, but he came down as truly man and truly God. He did what no human has ever done. He lived a sinless life, and he kept every one of God's commands perfectly. Unlike the devil and his false gods and goddesses, he didn't come to enslave people in their sins by adding to their sins. He gave his life to forgive our sins. And unlike any other god or goddess or any human being, after he died and was buried, he rose again from the grave to create new hearts in individuals and to grant the Holy Spirit so we could live transformed lives. But the good news keeps getting gooder because Jesus Christ, once he rose, once he gave us the Great Commission, he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he reigns and rules over this cultural chaos, over this election on Tuesday, and over your life and your struggles and your opposition. He rules over all. And one day he's going to return in the same body that he died on the cross, the same body that rose from the dead is going to come down and set foot on the Mount of Olives and every name and every person and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen? That is our God. And that is a God worth persevering for. Amen? That's a God to give consistently to missions for. That's a God to sow with gospel perseverance for. That is a God even to, to be radically obedient to. It's a God that we ought to sacrificially love lost people for. And it's a God that we ought to be willing to personally suffer for. So now what? Go sow with gospel perseverance. Go So, with gospel perseverance. And I have four applications there. You can look at them, and and I I think they're relevant. Live above reproach. These guys, this town clerk said, these guys have done nothing wrong. They lived above reproach. Sow gospel seeds in spite of opposition. Remain set apart from the increasing. Beloved, don't be pulled down into the chaos. And it's hard because it's our culture. It's our country. It's issues that we struggle with. But we cannot get pulled into the chaos and the mob action and and, and the hate. We need to proclaim the love and lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we're called to do. Because here's the good news. You know why Paul didn't die on that day? You know why Gaius and Aristarchus didn't die on that day? Because until God's done with you, you're invincible. And so you just keep sowing. And LifeBridge, we keep sowing. Amen? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I think it's obvious we can respond to this. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move and work in our lives, that this wouldn't be business as usual, church as usual. Father, there's been distractions because the enemy does not want this message to penetrate our hearts. But your word is greater, your spirit is greater. And Lord, I pray that we will be set apart by transformed lives to penetrate our culture with love. May we respond as the praise team plays. In Jesus' name, amen.